the work of redemption. And now we come to a section of John's Gospel where Jesus is dead and about to be buried. The one thing we need to realize is, and sometimes we don't, sometimes we look past the little nuances of the scriptures, of the text, but we need to realize that every aspect of Christ's life, every aspect of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, has deep significance concerning your salvation. Every aspect of it. Sometimes we like to just think of, well, Christ died for my sins and was resurrected on the third day. Of course, that's the main thrust of it. But we look past his burial. Do you know his burial is actually the transition of his whole work? It's transition from his humility and his burial is the transition. Now he's going to be exalted. He's going to be exalted back to the right. Not only the resurrection, he's going to be exalted back to the right hand of the Father. Once he first came, he's, he left his glory, he, he humbled himself, and now he's going to be exalted back to the Father. So the burial is actually transitional. Let's look at John 19, verses 31 to 42. And if you don't mind, I'd like to make a practice of this. Let's stand in the reading of God's word, please. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you may also believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again another scripture says. They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds in weight. <coughs> so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new tomb in which no one has yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this section that we come in in John's gospel. This transitional section, the burial of Christ, which has great significance for the believer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We had a great baptism yesterday. Our dear sister Pat was baptized. And she was buried with Christ. And she came up out of the waters, resurrected, back to new life. It was symbolic. 
of course, doesn't save her. She was already she's already saved, but it was symbolic of a of an inner reality, an outward symbol of what has taken place on the inside, as Pastor Brian so eloquently spoke yesterday before the baptism. But I'm not going to talk about that right now. Right now I want to read a story by Leith Anderson entitled, The Death Validated Their Message. At the 100th anniversary of the arrival of missionaries in Zaire, Christians gathered to celebrate from that part of Zaire that was once called the Belgian Congo. Near the end of the celebration, a very old man stood up to give a speech. He said that he would die soon and that he needed to tell some, something that no other man still living knew. He explained that when the first white missionaries came, his people didn't know whether to believe their message or not. So they devised a plan to slowly and secretly poison the missionaries and watch them die. One by one, children and adults became ill, died, and were buried. It was when his people saw how these missionaries died that they decided to believe their message. The missionaries never knew what was happening. They didn't know they were being poisoned and they didn't know why they were dying. Their faithfulness to the Lord convinced the people they ministered to that their message was true. I'm going to repeat that. Their faithfulness to the Lord convinced the people they ministered to that their message was true. Now, Christ validated his message by the resurrection. But his death also validated who he was and what he came to do. Why? Because of his faithfulness to his father. His faithfulness to the scriptures. And because... The G- Jesus filled all the Old Testament prophecies concerning his death. Jesus, his faithfulness was on display for all to see. John saw it, John believed it, and John testified to it. And you and I, and this is important, we have first-hand historical testimony of the first century apostle. We have that. And when you believed... If you're a Christian here today, and you believed the Holy Spirit bore witness with your spirit that not only are you saved, but that this is true. When I first came to Christ, I knew it was true. I had no doubt that it was true. It was like whenever anybody spoke the word of God, it pierced my heart. I knew it was true. And nobody had to convince me. I knew it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And to this very day, I know this book is true. And here's my proposition. I always start off with a proposition. Because Christ died for you, you are a witness for him, so some may believe. And three points I want to bring to you tonight. Because Christ died, point one, you need to be convinced Christ died for you. Not just that Christ died, but he died for you. Point two, because Christ died, you need to be a witness for Christ. This is not an option. We'll find that out. And point three, you don't need to be a secret disciple of Christ. Because Christ died. (laughs) Point one, you need to be convinced Christ died for you. I'm going to read verses 31, 34 again. Excuse me. Since it was a day of preparation... 
and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross for the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. You see, let me start off with the day of preparation. The Jews had a problem with that. The day of preparation was a day prior to Sabbath or the Passover, Exodus 16.23. On this day, the Jews generally purified themselves, prepared their food and carried out their chores since they could not do it on the following day. So they, this was very sacred to them. So uh, they had to get the bodies off the cross. That was important to them. They had to get the bodies off the cross so they wouldn't violate the Sabbath or the Passover, and defile the land according to Deuteronomy 21. And it's amazing, as Dr. Sproul says, that the Jews were so concerned with the purity of their feast, and they just killed the one for whom the feast were established in the first place. They were so concerned about the minute points of the law that they violated the greatest law. So they conferred with Pilate and they said, we need your permission to break their legs. And that's what they did. They took this mallet and broke their legs. And the reason why they would break their legs was so that they could not lift their bodies. The crucified had to lift their bodies to take a breath of air. And if they couldn't do that, it would be minutes and they would die of suffocation. Then they would take the bodies down and not defile the land. In their warped minds, they weren't breaking the law. It was total, total hypocrisy. They would strain out a gnat. The smallest of the unclean animals, they were forbidden to eat. But they would swallow a camel, the largest of unclean animals. They were so concerned about the small things but neglected the larger, more important things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. They willfully closed their eyes to who Christ was and what he came to do. They willfully did that. Instead, they nailed the Son of God to the cross. Are you so concerned about making a practice of going to church, Bible study, the Lord's Supper, doing all the Christian things. And you should do that. And it would be a sin not to do that. We should make a practice of those things. But do you make a practice of those things but fail to love your Christian brother or sister? Like Pastor Brian was preaching the last couple of weeks. See, the Pharisees, that's the way they thought. They were so worried about the little things that they fail to recognize the big and most important thing. And when we do that, we are no better than the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel. So they broke the legs of the two that were crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. It's God's providence, by the way. Why was Jesus already dead when typically it could be two, three days for the crucified person to die? Jesus was only on the cross for six hours. 
Six hours, that was it. Why did he die? Because we saw the last time I spoke, Jesus gave up his life. John 19, verse 30, the last time we looked at this, the second half of the verse 30, it tells us he bowed his head and what? Get, say it. He bowed his head. Well, we've got to get to verse 30 first. He bowed his head and what? That was voluntary. He gave up his spirit. Nobody took his life from him. He gave it up. Jesus also testified in John 10, verses 17 and 18. He said, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Again, as I've been saying the last couple of times I preached, Jesus was not the victim, but he was the victor. He voluntarily laid his life down in accordance to his Father's will. Anyway, after the soldiers saw that Jesus was dead, one of them pierced his side with a spear... And water and blood came out. Now some commentators see this as very symbolic. The water and blood. Some think that the water represented baptism. And um, blood represented the Lord's Supper. Maybe. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. But I think John was saying to his readers. And he was trying to bring out a point. Jesus is dead. This is not hearsay. This is not a fictitious story. He's dead. I've seen it with my own eyes. Jesus truly died. This is John's testimony to us. This is an accurate historical account of the Savior's death. Why does John seem to be so adamant about this? And I think if you read 1 John verses 1 to 3 and understand the background of that epistle, you will understand John's concern. So if you don't mind, let's turn to John, 1 John. The first chapter, verses 1 to 3. Now listen what John says, and I'm going to give you a little background on this epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So why is John talking about hearing, seeing, and touching? Why is he talking about that? Hearing, seeing, touching Jesus. Well, at the time, there were false teachings coming into the church that would deny the physicality of Christ. That's what they were dealing with back then. This was probably the first appearances of Gnosticism. Seeds of them in the first century. It didn't come to full bloom until the second century and continued into the third century. So they had three centuries of this heretical teaching threatening the church. And one of the many heretical teachings of this group was that matter is evil and spirit is good. And although these false teachers attributed some form of deity to Jesus, they did, they they acknowledged that he was God 
in some way. They denied his humanity to sort of protect him from evil. In other words, matter is evil, so Jesus couldn't possibly be a human. They would say something, Jesus only seemed to be physical. He's some sort of phantom, some sort of ghost. This is what was attacking the church in the first three centuries. And we don't really deal with that kind of teaching today. Today, the teaching that we deal with today, the false teaching, is the denial of his divinity. That Jesus is truly God. In other words, what they were saying back then was... Jesus was not really human. And what they say today is, Jesus was not really God. But here, John is combating the denial of Jesus' humanity and saying, no, Jesus is a real human being. And I know because I'm an eyewitness, he's saying. I heard him with my own ears. I saw him with my own eyes. And I touched him with my own hands. You see, his humanity is as important as his divinity. If you don't believe in his humanity, it's just as heretical as not believing in his divinity. You strip Jesus of something that God made him to be. Fully God or truly God and truly man. So John is saying, yes, he was not only truly God, but truly man. Back in our text, John was saying, Jesus is dead. The spotless Lamb of God is dead. It's not that he appeared to be dead, but he's dead. Water and blood flowed from him because he was human. Even the soldiers knew he was dead. Even the soldiers knew he was dead. They had nothing to gain about lying about his death. Verse 33 says, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. In Mark's account, Pilate learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead. So we even have the historical account from the soldiers that Jesus was dead. Another reason we need to believe in his death is because today some liberals say Jesus was only in a semi-coma and wasn't really dead. So when they put him in the tomb and he regained consciousness, he walked out of the tomb. So we really have no resurrection. Next time I preach, I will speak in detail about the false theories to try to and explain away the resurrection. I will also speak about where Jesus was the three days between his death and his resurrection. These are big controversies in the church. Really shouldn't be, but they are. So John is saying once again, Jesus is dead. Let me state the first point again. You need to be convinced that Christ died for you. Over the past 40 years of my salvation... That saved around 1978. I met multitudes of people who believed Jesus died. They believe in the historical account of Christ's death. They didn't deny that. But is it enough to believe that Jesus was crucified and died? Is it enough? The Jews believed it. They were right there. They witnessed it. The soldiers believed it. Pilate believed it. And many witnessed it and believed it. But it's not enough to believe that Jesus died. You must believe he died for you. Right. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that what? God raised him from what? From the dead. You will be saved. There's no resurrection 
without the death of Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 Well, before we read that, if you truly believe that He died for your sins, something happens. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. That what? We might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wound you have been healed. When you believe by faith that Christ died for you, you yourself die to sin. Jesus died for your sins, and you're no longer slaves to sin. Jesus said anyone who sins is a slave to sin. But when Christ comes into your life, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're now a slave to righteousness. You're now a slave to Christ. Sin doesn't master you anymore because of the death of Christ. So there are many people who believe Jesus died. The Jews, Pilate, soldiers, and many who witnessed crucifixion. And there are many who claim they believe Jesus died for them. But these many that believe Jesus died and even died for them haven't themselves died. Galatians 2.20, Paul said it very eloquently. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, you and I participate in the cross of Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. Only God's grace can accomplish this for you. Only God's grace can show you the reality of His death on the cross for you. Point one, you need to be convinced Christ died for you. Point two, you need to be a witness for Christ. Verses 35 to 37. Let's read that. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him on whom they have passed. So scholars differ, differ on... Who was the one who bore witness? Was it John? Another person John was speaking about? Or God? Was God the witness? Now I believe it was John. I think most scholars believe it was John for good reason. The point that John was making was that you can depend on his witness and testimony. He was an eyewitness. This is a historical account. He's saying you could believe it. You could believe it. When, when, when the spirit fell at Pentecost and the church was birthed. What did the people listen to? What, they, they listened to the apostles' teaching. And these teachings, this, the apostles' doctrine, has been carried down throughout the centuries until us, to us to this day. So when we teach the Bible, when you read the Bible, that's the apostles' doctrine. And John is saying, you can believe my testimony. John has witnessed and testified to the truth that Jesus is without a doubt dead. He knows he's telling the truth. Now, there's nothing more frustrating, and I think you'll agree with me, that when you witness something and you try to tell someone what you witnessed, but because it sounds so outlandish, they refuse to believe you. That's frustrating, isn't it? You know you're telling the truth, but they refuse to believe you. Sometimes people will begin to swear. 
They, they swear in their mother's grave. Whatever that means, I don't know. Or they swear to God that they're telling the truth. And Jesus said, what did he say? He said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to swear. When you're telling the truth, there's no need to have swearing aid your truth. That's right. John plainly says, I've seen it and testify it to it and I know that I'm telling the truth. No swearing going on and on about how we need to believe him. He just told the truth. And John tells us why these things took place. He's saying that the scripture might be fulfilled. And he cites two scriptures. First one is Psalm 34.20. Now one of his bones will be broken. And Psalm 34.20 says, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. This Psalm of David shows God's care for the righteous man. And that perfect righteous man was Jesus. Not one of his bones were broken. In Exodus 12 and Numbers 9, the Old Testament sacrifices forbade the breaking the bones of a Passover lamb. See how Jesus fulfilled prophecy? Wow. The soldiers broke the legs, bones of the two soldiers that were crucified with Jesus, but not his, not Jesus. They didn't break his bones. Why? Because God said it through the prophets in the Old Testament, and it happened. Anytime God speaks, it happens. And God is still speaking to us through His Son today, and it happens. Make no mistake about this. Christ is the Christ of the Old Testament. The Old Testament pointed to Christ. The yearly sacrifice of slaying the lamb and sprinkling its blood on the mercy seat was a temporal covering of sin until Christ came. Jesus was our final Passover lamb that was slain. And the blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat of heaven now. And that's why Paul in Corinthians called Jesus Christ our Passover. Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament demands that Israel, you and I could not fulfill. Then he cites another scripture. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12.10. Which says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on, who, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is speaking of Messiah Jesus. Zechariah was actually prophesying about Jesus, who was pierced for our transgressions. This also has future implications. In, in Revelation 1.7, he says, John says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail account of him. Even so, amen. In this sense, in this sense, we all pierced Jesus by our sins. Every one of us. And when he returns, the ones who have been saved and forgiven will rejoice. Amen. But the ones that reject him will mourn and weep and wail at his return because the judgment they will face. They will see the ones, they will see the one he, they pierced and the one they rejected. As Christians, we will see the ones we pierced, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Amen. And all, all, all who look to the pierced Savior shall be saved. So John is saying that what happened concerning his death was predicted. 
Isaiah predicted his death 700 years earlier. And guess what? It happened. By the way, the Bible predicts Jesus is coming back. And just like he came the first time, the predictions were fulfilled. He's coming back. Make no mistake about it. He's coming back for a holy and spotless church that he cleansed with his own blood. It is said that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. And anyone who could say that happened by chance is deluded. Pastor, not Pastor, Peter Stoner, in his classic book, Science Speaks, calculated the chance of any man fulfilling these prophecies, even down to the present time, to be in one in a hundred quadrillion. In other words, it would take one shot in 100 quadrillion for Jesus to fulfill all those prophecies. Impossible. Jesus filled those prophecies because God ordained it. That's astounding to say the least. The Bible is trustworthy. Let me ask you this question. Are you convinced the scriptures are true? You can rely on the scriptures. Amen. As a matter of fact, you can put your eternal soul on the scriptures. For John the Apostle, his purpose in giving us an accurate account of his death and showing us that Jesus fulfilled scripture and that his word is trustworthy was that you may believe and I may believe. It's, you know, did you know that that's John's main point of his gospel? Listen to John in the 20th chapter, the 31st verse. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, mark that, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is bearing witness to his readers through his whole gospel. Not just in that one section we read, through his whole gospel. Is John the only one who is to bear witness and testify about Christ and him crucified? You need to be a witness for Christ. We are witnesses for Christ. I just want to read quickly four scriptures that tell us we need to be active witnesses for Christ. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Are you saved? If you're saved, the Holy Spirit fills your heart. You have the power to witness. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. 1 Peter 3.15 Peter says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, don't be cruel. Don't be arrogant. I've seen Christians over the years, they're arrogant, they're rude, they try to make Jesus, uh, uh, you know, this, this thing that people just want to shy away from. Because they're arrogant, they're rude, they're not gentle. They don't know how to explain the gospel. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Before you can make a disciple, guess what? You have to make a what? A convert. So the implication is there. 
We make converts, then we disciple them. And in Matthew 5, 14, 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We are not to hide the gospel. This is not about, this is my faith and it's personal and I will keep it to myself. Jesus never said that. The Bible never speaks of that. The Bible calls, calls us to be effective witnesses for, for him. Warren Wiersbe, from his book, The Wycliffe Handbook on Preaching and for, uh, I'm sorry, Wycliffe Handbook of Preaching and Preachers said this, A man once testified in one of D.L. Moody's meetings that he had lived on the Mount of Transfiguration for five years. That means he was on this mountaintop experience. How many souls did you lead to Christ last year? Moody bluntly asked him. Well, the man hesitated. I don't know. Did you see any saved? Moody persisted. I don't know that I have, the man admitted. Well, Moody said... We don't need that kind of mountaintop experience. When we get up so high that we cannot reach down and save poor sinners, there's something wrong. We don't save anyone. God through Christ does. But he uses our prayers and our witness to lost sinners. Romans 5, Romans 10, I'm sorry. Romans 10 verses 14 to 15. This is Paul the Apostle speaking. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not, never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I want to encourage you to go and share Christ and him crucified. New Christians may think, well, I'll wait until I know the Bible a little more, then I'll share the gospel. Or older Christians may think, I'm just not good at it. I know the scriptures, but I have a hard time with it. Well, listen, from Mark's gospel. I want you to really listen to this scripture. From Mark's gospel, the fifth chapter, the 18th to 21st verse. After Jesus cast out demons from a man, he says... As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by, with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Decapolis was a, it's called also the tenth cities in some It was a large area. This man had a great effect on this whole large area. He just came to faith in Christ. He didn't know the gospel the well as maybe we know it. He just began to tell people what God had did for him. Amen. And everyone believed. Matter of fact, a few chapters later, they all came to Jesus and marveled at him. From this one man's testimony, don't ever use the excuse, I don't know how to share my faith. Go and share what Christ has done for you. That's all. We don't have to be these professional theologians. We don't have to be pastors or, or evangelists. All we have to do is know what Christ did for us, know that he suffered and died on the cross, and go tell people. And not to do that 
It's really the epitome of selfishness because somebody shared it with me. If I saw someone's house on fire, would I not warn him? But we see people dying and going to hell and we're afraid to tell them about Jesus. And we're saved. And someone had the audacity to come to us and tell us. Please. It's, it's an awesome thing. When you begin to share, listen, we could all be at times afraid. I understand that. I understand that. But let not our fears overshadow the reality that Christ came to suffer and die for our sins. Go and share Christ and Him crucified. Point one, you need to be convinced Christ died for you. Point two, you need to be a witness for Christ. And point three, the final point, you don't need to be a secret disciple of Christ. Let's read verses 38 to 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came in, bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds in weight. Uh, so they took the body of Jesus and bound him in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, which no one has yet been laid. So Joseph, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So let's start off with Joseph of Arimathea. We know this about him, as we collect information um, about him from all the Gospels. He was from Arimathea, a place where scholars really don't know where it was. Uh, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a disciple of Jesus. So, so far they're saying good things about him. Uh, he was a member of the council. That was the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish council. He was a good and righteous man. And had not consented to the decisions of the Jews to crucify Jesus. He was also a rich man. Which more likely was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53.9. The first half of that. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death. So all good things were said about Joseph of Arimathea. Except John says this, one negative thing. He says, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Now, before we get too harsh with Joseph of Arimathea, we need to understand that to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you would get excommunicated. And lose your position. You would get excommunicated from the temple. And you would lose your position from the Sanhedrin. If you identified with Jesus of Nazareth. Now think about that. The Jewish leaders had just crucified Jesus. They were not sympathetic of his followers at all. By the way, people are not sympathetic of the followers of Jesus today either. Praise God. Oh, they're not. <laughs> so Joseph of Arimathea they would probably... Many of us would have done, shh, let's not tell my peers, let's not tell my colleagues. Remember, all the apostles fled from fear when Jesus was arrested, they all fled. And we also need to know that this was before, and this is key, this was before the power of the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Remember when 
Pentecost fell? Who was one of the most fearful men of that group? Peter. Peter was one of the most fearful men of that group. He was a coward. He denied Christ. And he was fearful. When the Holy Spirit fell and filled his heart, he stood up and addressed the crowd. And the Bible says about 3,000 men were pierced to the heart that they got saved. So let's be easy on Joseph of Arimathea. Because it is also true that he now showed courage by asking Pilate for the body of Jesus and preparing his body for an honorable burial. The Jews of that day regarded proper burial of that dead as most important. Even though Joseph of Arimathea showed to be a coward while Jesus was alive, he showed tremendous courage in Christ's death by taking the body of Christ and giving him a royal burial. Next, John talks about Nicodemus. Another fearful man. He came to Jesus at night. He didn't want his colleagues to see him, most likely. And Jesus discussed with him the new birth. Another member of the Sanhedrin. More than likely, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And another secret follower of Christ. And John makes the point of telling us that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Why did he come to Jesus at night? As I said before, probably because of fear of his peers. He didn't want his peers to know that. But now, it's still light out. When he came to prepare Jesus' body for burial, it was before sundown. Could it be his fear of God now overshadowed his fear of man? I think so. Dr. Donald Carson tells us, John may be telling us that by this action, Nicodemus showed shows he is stepping out of darkness and emerging into the light. But now at this point, Nicodemus showed courage by bringing myrrh and alloys to prepare the body of Jesus for burial in the daylight. He's in the daylight now. He knows he could be seen by his peers and his colleagues, but he does it anyway. It's amazing when someone finally believes in Christ their fear diminishes. That happened to my father. I told you this story before. My father, 89 years old, fought me on my Christianity for almost 30 years. Didn't want to know anything about Christ. 89 years old, he's dying. He has two months to live. He calls me up. He calls me and my wife up. Come, I, I need to speak with you. I'm afraid of dying. I went to the hospital, brought the Bible. We shared Christ with him again. I mean, we... He knew the gospel. We shared it with him, with him many times. Something happened this night. He received Christ as his Lord and Savior. They took him from the hospital. They brought him back to the nursing home. We went home. I go back to the nursing home. And the nurse's aides came over to me and said, Your father is telling us he is not afraid to die anymore. And he signed the do not resuscitate. Which he was reluctant to sign. My father's fears were diminished because Christ came into his life. And that's what I believe is happening over here with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. So I think it's important to note that Nicodemus brought the spices that weighed 75 pounds, or maybe a little less, some scholars think, maybe 65 pounds. But in any event, it was an amount that was so great and it was used to bury kings or rich people. You see the transition? 
his humiliation, now it's starting to go back up. Now he's being treated like a king, royalty, a rich man. The Egyptians, they embalmed, but the Jews didn't do that. They wrapped the body in a shroud with the spices, so when the body started to decay, it would mask the smell. But the amount, again, of the spices was for royalty. And I think Nicodemus understood that. And I think Joseph of Arimathea understood that. John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus buried Jesus in a garden tomb which no one has yet been laid and that this tomb was very close to the place that Jesus was crucified. Now these details are very significant because it shows us that this was a divinely orchestrated plan. First, Jesus was buried in a private new garden tomb. Okay, the garden. Remember the garden? Adam and Eve. Okay. Matthew Henry said concerning the garden, in the garden of Eden, and the grave first received their power. I'm sorry, in the garden of Eden, and the grave first received their power, and now in the garden they are conquered, disarmed, and triumphed over. In the garden Christ began his passion, and from the from a garden he would rise and begin his exaltation. The garden was sin. Now in the garden. Christ has victory. And according to, and concerning the tomb, many of these tombs held more than one person. But John makes the point that says no one was in there but Jesus. The reason is, as Dr. Carson says, if on the third day the tomb is empty, only one body had disappeared and only one person could have been resurrected. You see, if there was other bodies in there, there would be much confusion about who was resurrected. So John said, "There's no, there was nobody in there but one. That was a new tomb. The next significant thing we need to note is that the tomb was near. They didn't have to go far to bury Jesus. Now you might read that and I might read that and, and just overlook that. But this is very significant. You know, when John says these things, he says it for a reason. They didn't have to go very far to bury Jesus. Sundown was, sundown was almost there, and they had to finish their work before the Sabbath began. But more importantly, Jesus had to be buried before sundown because he said he would rise after three days. Remember that? Jesus was in the tomb three days and three nights. If the tomb was far away, they would have probably missed Friday. By the way, the Jews counted any part of the day as a full day. Part of Friday was one day. And that would be one full day for them. Saturday is another full day. And the part of Sunday was another full day for them. So in the Jewish mind back then, that would mean three days and three nights. That's the way they counted it. So we could see the hand of God orchestrating every detail of the life and death of Christ. John MacArthur said, In his burial, as well as his death, Jesus orchestrated all the details to accomplish God's already revealed will. Now, I like what he says. It's, he accomplished God's already revealed will. Joseph and Nicodemus showed extraordinary courage as they prepared and buried Jesus. It's, if you think about this, it's not really important how Nicodemus and Joseph started. It's how they ended. And they ended without fear. And they ended 
not being ashamed of Christ. They were no longer afraid of Christ's enemies who were their peers. They weren't secret disciples anymore. No, they were now convinced of who Christ was and what he did, even if it was still hazy to them. They may not have understood it fully, but they believed it. Let me challenge you with another question. Are you convinced of who Christ is and what he has done, but afraid of, of Christ's enemies? This is what Bruce Milne says. This last point focus, focuses the challenge of the passage. As the death of Jesus drove Nicodemus and Joseph into open identification with them, so he calls his people on the basis of his death for them to receive the gift of his powerful spirit and to be his bold and unashamed witnesses in the world. Are you a secret disciple of Jesus? I don't want to answer that for you. You answer that for yourself. And if you are, I'm compelling you to come out and start proclaiming Christ. He promises to be with you to the end of the age. You and I obviously are not going to bury Jesus and face the wrath of the religious leaders. That happened back then. It's not happening now. We're called... To proclaim the message of the cross, not being intimidated by fear of people who oppose our message. Amen? Let me conclude this. Are you convinced Christ died for you? For you? Not for this person or that person or the world in general. You're convinced that he died for you. If you're convinced that he died for you, share him by witnessing Go on and tell people about what Christ did for you. Share Christ with people. They need People are kinder than you think most of the time when it comes to Christ. Most of the time. Then you, go, then you come across some people who are just belligerent, mad, angry, don't want to hear about Jesus. You've got to deal with that too. I want to tell you that you have the greatest resources for witnessing. Did you know that? You have your testimony. Remember the demonic man? He had his testimony. You have the scriptures. You have more than the demonic man had. You have the Holy Spirit in filling your heart. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the scriptures. And you have your testimony. You have a lot. You have a lot. Don't be a secret disciple. Christ died unashamedly for you. Don't be ashamed of him. In Luke 9.26, Jesus said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and the glory of his holy angels. There is no need to be a secret disciple when we have a Savior who is Lord of all. When he comes back, every eye will behold him and some will be fearful of him because judgment and they didn't confess him before men but some of us, and I hope that's us here, will rejoice when they see him because they confess him before men, the one they love and the one they cherish. Do you love Christ? Do you really love him? What he did for you? Go and share Christ. Go and share Christ. Don't be ashamed of him. Go and share. I want to encourage you this week, go and share Christ. Let's fill up this church with souls, believers in Christ so we can disciple them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God.